Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. And we would also like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, I'm your familiar stranger for today, Tim, together with my familiar strangers, Carolyn. Hello. Alex. Hello. And Claire. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. Also, you might have seen on social media recently that we were awarded an engaged anthropology grant by the Australian Anthropological Association to create some transcripts of our episodes. We'd love your input. We're going to be polling our audience over the next couple of weeks to find your favourite episodes or the ones that you would most want to see transcriptions of. So keep an eye out on social media. So I recently saw Nomadland, the film that it seems everyone's been talking about for months. And last month it picked up Best Motion Picture Drama and Best Director at the Golden Globes. And then went on to win three Academy Awards for Best Director, Best Picture and Best Actress. Which is quite a success for a film which can trace its beginnings to what was essentially an anthropological study. Luckily... Here in Australia, cinemas uh, are open, so I was able to see it recently on the big screen, which I would certainly recommend if you can do so, COVID permitting. It's directed by Chloe Zhao and stars Frances McDormand in the lead role as Fern, who plays a van-dwelling working nomad who leaves her hometown of Empire in northern Nevada, following the death of her husband and the shutdown of the sole industry in the town. She becomes a nomad, part of a growing subculture in, in the US, and travels around the country working in low-paying seasonal labour jobs in order to scrape by enough money to keep her in food and fuel. I quite enjoyed the film. It's a beautifully layered film and quite striking cinematography. One of the things that really stood out for me when I was watching it was this immersive nature of the film itself. It comes across as as unhurried, non-narrative driven, and so in that sense it really builds a story without the standard markers you'd normally expect in an Academy Award winning drama. But This podcast is not a cinema review podcast, it's a podcast about anthropology, and I'm interested in what you guys thought of it, and uh, what it is that we're interested in from an anthropological perspective. So, Claire, what did you think? I absolutely loved the movie on its own. I think it's a great, very poetic celebration of the resilience and the creativity of these disenfranchised folks living on the road very well done in terms of what you just said, non-linear narrative as well as cinematography. However, I do have my reservation because I have the book right here and I think it is quite a departure from the book because the book is a very, very pungent indictment of the precariat of the American economy after the financial crisis hit and somehow the movie seems to me that it fails to include this critical ideation of what the book 
sets out to criticize. So we've all seen the movie. We did, we did do our homework. You said this essentially started as an anthropological study. Literally, was the author an anthropologist or what is that background story? Yeah, well, essentially the original book was was called Nomad Land, and the subtitle of the book was Surviving America in the 21st Century. The author was Jessica Bruder. So she's a journalist, an investigative journalist, who has had a history of writing about similar projects in the past. But in her investigation of Nomadland, or what was to become Nomadland, she essentially employed ethnographic methods in, into this investigation, into the van-dwelling subculture. So she spent about three years, I believe, and travelled more than... 15,000 miles on the road and documenting the project, which became an article, which then became the book, which then became the film. So it, it actually, in some ways, reminds me of a book which I read some time ago by another journalist called Barbara Ehrenreich. And she wrote a book back in the late 90s called Nickel and Dimes. Ehrenreich spent time undercover as a low-wage worker, essentially investigating the difficulties of the working poor in the US in the late, in the late 90s. And in her book, she brought to the page the realities of, of what actually living in the precariat at that time was like and the health and social issues faced by, by many of the people in that position. So in some ways, there's, there's a similar approach in Jessica Bruder's Project Land, which was to become Nomadland, and, and Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dimed. Does the author engage with actual anthro theory at any stage, or is it just ethnographic-ish? It's more about bearing witness, like a very lovely ethnographic literary nonfiction, almost like a forensic journalism. And what sets anthropology apart from this, more like an ethnography, I guess we could call it, is we would have more of theory apart from just ethnographic observation. There would be like this balance between inductive and deductive, between concept and concrete. Yeah, I mean, that's what actually made the movie interesting, but it also made me really kind of wanting more. And it's fine. I don't honestly expect a movie to start talking about, say, Bourdieu and Habitus or something. (laughs) But I really wanted that extra critique of how capitalism kind of works and screws people over. And I know that probably wasn't the point of the director, but I wanted it so badly. (laughs) And this is a bigger question, I think to concern anthropologists and people actually doing ethnographic study, what if that's not how the people themselves want to be portrayed? I I think, Carolyn, you recommended an article. And I mean, lots of those people didn't want to be portrayed as victims of suffering. So when I, as the anthropologist, say, well, you know what this is? This is capitalism. What if that's not the narrative that they want? You know? So the article uh, in question that we're discussing is called A Year in a School Bus Amid COVID-19, published by Time Magazine, uh, which actually is set uh, in a lot of the locations that feature in the Nomadland book and film, including the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, which is essentially a, a huge amount of sort of public land in which people are able to camp on for weeks, months at a time, permit-depending One thing that I think that article does really well, as well as the film, in perhaps less of an explicit way, is it does kind of paint a picture of this struggle, that there there are people who have had to resort, for lack of a better word, to this sort of lifestyle because of like economic financial hardship, 
from capitalism in the US. But I think it also talks about the empowerment that comes with it. It almost like the unexpected empowerment, you know, like even in the movie, they go through self-survival tactics. The whole sort of character arc of Fern is kind of finding solitude and I guess like self-happiness in nature. And although perhaps some people might have changed their lifestyles because of a hardship, they're ultimately still making the most of their time on the road. And there is much to love about this particular lifestyle as much as there is to feel grief about the reasons why they perhaps started that lifestyle to begin with. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Carolyn. Just thinking back to the romanticization that I was referring to before, romanticizing that lifestyle. Um, it's kind of interesting that I think I had an interview with Chloe Zhao and, and she she referred to Bruder's book as being so large in scale in terms of how far she's traveled and how deep she's gone into documenting it a time in this country where the way of life for a whole generation was disappearing. And she really struggled with how to represent that on film. And so in that sense, the character of Fern kind of anchors and grounds that story and and becomes that central protagonist within the broader narrative and within that broader setting. And I find that really interesting in terms of the way that the film might have been without a central character, which was fictionalized, would have been a very different piece of work. Well, I think that highlights, moving into that realm, it highlights an interesting idea about public engagement. As anthropologists, we struggle a lot with public engagement. And this movie's done really well, brought attention to an issue, etc. And yet the way it's done that is through fiction. Like, it really treads the line between fact and fiction. Again, a lot of the cast are actual nomads, which is an interesting way of doing it. But it has also led to critiques and thinking about the presentation, because of course... It lends this sense of veracity to a thing that isn't, strictly speaking, true. Yeah, I listened to a really great interview with Chloe Zhao in preparation for this. And there's a quote from that that said, she said, how much of real life can we bring into fiction? Which I think is really interesting because, like you said, Alex, sometimes that can be problematic as much as it can be emblematic. Like, I know the story arc of Swanky was fictionalized for the movie. Which begs the question why they felt the need to add in a subplot about terminal illness to drive that narrative because I felt like it was beautiful and sad and and I guess emblematic of some people's experience on the road. But nevertheless, I still feel like it was still a solid film without that sort of subplot. We almost need stories to understand things. Let's be real. People's lives do not have story arcs. I'm sorry to any listeners out there who feel they star in their own personal drama. You don't. Just a whole lot of random shit happens to you. That, that is life. Well, but we feel we need to coalesce them into stories to make sense of them. Yeah, um, just thinking like Swanky, for example, her storyline in the movie is just so different from what is portrayed of her in the book. Like, for example, the movie omitted the part where she actually cracked a rib while working with Amazon. Very hazardous job conditions. But they instead gave her a different storyline, which I find to be quite interesting. And then same with Linda May, who in the book claimed that, that I hate this f-ing job. But then in the movie, it seems that it's a bit of watered-down version of what she is. There's definitely limitations of what people can say and do in representation, like film, especially when the company name is being used. I was surprised that they were able to use Amazon 
in the ways that they did. I thought that, well, that's the first time I've seen Amazon portrayed fictionally in a movie in a way that's not positive about their, you know, same day delivery (laughs) services. I don't know. They made me really sad. I mean, the whole movie made me sad, really. In the movie, Fen and her co-workers, for example, when they're having a lunch break, they were talking and laughing, which, and, and with their supervisor being really chilled about it. I mean, it's practically the opposite to what Amazon is about in real life. But it felt really forced, right? Like, I mean, the scene where they were, like, having lunch and stuff felt somewhat genuine. But then, you know, the first sort of scene at Amazon after Fern walks in is, like, that manager going, all right, everyone, what do we do? And everyone's like, no, what they said, I can't remember. But it was, like, very, like, forced, really getting people to feel happy about the fact that they were privileged working at Amazon. And it was intercut with these scenes of just loneliness and isolation of Fern and her van parked in this like uh, RV park filled and surrounded by other people both in the park and the warehouse but being this solitary isolated person like 90% of the time I just found it so depressing (laughs) personally and even like the um like I think like obviously the most romantic scenes are the ones where she's out in nature like rediscovering herself um and her identity without her um her husband but I still felt sad about it. Like, it was very poignant. I think it was the music and just the isolation. It felt like her journey to me. Because they, they really emphasised the community that, like, everyone else had. To me, again, shied away from those structural issues. Made it look like it was more her that wasn't finding the community. Well, I guess it's hard to, to show everyone's journey with community when you're dealing with, like, a, a story of this scale, right? But also... I don't know. I got I got senses of it, you know, when there's like quite a few sort of like one-on-one interviews with the the nomads, the real nomads. They all discuss different varying aspects of why they came on the road. I remember being a Vietnam vet was one. Bob was talking about his son's suicide. Like all of these different sort of things were just like small glimpses into the sort of the hardships and the struggles that they all faced. I don't know. I got this real sense that while, yes, there is like a communal aspect to the lifestyle, it is still ultimately quite solitary until you see them again on the road. Going back to Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dime, she asserts that to be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor a nameless benefactor to everyone. As I was watching Nomadland, I was thinking about uh, Nickel and Dimed. And I mean, there's a lot of similarities in the sense that these low-wage workers living in the precariat are in, right? I mean, this Iron Rack's book was set in the 90s. Nomadland was set in the wake of the Great Recession. And there's a lot of comparisons between both of these projects and Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Uh, the real-life nomads depicted on the screen are essentially a version of Steinbeck's Jode family and the thousands of other Okies that, that fled ecological disaster and the resulting Dust Bowl, uh, who hit the road in the 1930s in the US seeking work, land, dignity, and a future for their families. Much like the Jode family of the 1930s, many have not chosen this lifestyle. And I was wondering if maybe we could think about some of those larger kind of structural factors that are in place within society. There are definitely people who don't have work or as steady work or or as much mobility in order to like reap the benefits of I suppose that uh that labor force in many ways well it's also just like what social capital you've been lucky enough to accumulate in your life no Mm. it's like digital nomads as well it's like a very Mm. like digital nomads are kind of like the the bougie version of van dwelling right because digital nomads can earn a lot of money 
I've met people who are traveling and living in sort of low cost countries who are on six figures. And the reason why they do it is because they can live in a country that has a lower GDP and then, you know, they live exactly how they want to live and consume exactly everything that they want to consume and still earn the same amount of money as what they would back in their home country as well. But still retaining some kind of like, you know, nomadicism, I suppose. Just thinking about the example Carolyn gave, it speaks volumes about different kinds of mobility, right? There is this mobility as a capital, as a social capital, where people with with this kind of mobility can move around the globe freely as they will and take advantage of this wealth gap between countries. And on the other hand, the forced mobility we saw in Nomadland, for example, are created by, again, this inequality in the economic system. And it is what constrains Older people were portrayed as the central protagonist in the movie, and that's not common. That's not something that we'd normally expect to see on the silver screen, right? But to me, it was really this it could be seen as quite concerning, you know, in the sense that other cultures, elders are considered wise, they're respected and should be celebrated. In the fast-paced Western kind of capitalistic society, there's this preference to value youth, right? And I was wondering what you guys thought about that. You're right, Tim, in the sense that a lot of the time coming of age film and literature is all about sort of the coming of age the young person's journey with that and people forget that we can have those experiences at any at any age and at sometimes when you're much older you bring this sort of like you said wisdom knowledge experience to to the journey perhaps more so than when you were young something that i found it subtly spoke to and i think could have spoke to a bit more in a lot of societies having that many elderly people lots of them didn't have family or kind of family or that have somehow reached this stage of no one to help and care and that would be such a taboo like something has gone deeply wrong for that to kind of occur more than that it also represents the result of nuclear families i mean if if you are really concentrated on you know mum dad and the kids well, if there aren't the kids around, then there's no one and you fall between the cracks, there's no one to really look after you. Whereas in a lot of societies that emphasize the extended family much more, I see this a lot in Ecuador where you have all sorts of kin kind of bundled up under the one roof. That extended weave sort of pulls together. Whereas in many ways, Nomadland highlighted the results of if extended networks don't really pull together. What about then the network? in the desert because that was clearly about finding perhaps that lost community you have to make your own kin yeah there is still this this sense of community i think it's just perhaps it's different than the nuclear family as you were saying alex and the and the ideal american dream so speaking of kin it was mother's day here on the weekend and i was thinking about mother's day in the context of how commodified it is in our society and i wondered what you guys thought of that Mother's Day, I went stationary shopping, and the first thing that the club greeted me was, are you here for some last-minute Mother's Day gift shopping? And I was like, no, I'm buying for myself. <laughs> but then it got me thinking, <laughs> why? And since when did Mother's Day turn into this, you know, greeting card gift exchange holiday? And then I did a bit of research, and I'm a bit of like a historic history, not like you, Alex. The incarnation of Mother's Day in America has activist origins because it was like two mothers, Anna Jarvis and Julia Howe, who were proposing for a day of mothers to 
advocate for peace and for women to unite. And then later on, when it soon got popularized, Anna Jarvis, one of the two vanguard of Mother's Day, to her horror, she found out that Mother's Day has soon been commodified, and she spent the later half of her life advocate against the commodification of Mother's Day, which I find to be really interesting. Like, what forces are at play here that turned what is supposed to be a really activist grassroots expression of a need for a better world into this, like, it got co-opted into the consumerist capitalist market. And then also how, I guess, the whole consumerism has invaded our private life, the intimate relationship between mother and child. I think something that's really valuable that maybe one could argue is sort of capitalistic in a sense, recent rise of other types of mothers as well and like a visibility for for all different ways of perhaps being a mother, those that are mother in the traditional sense, like what we were just talking about in the nuclear family, as well as mothers who perhaps were mothers, people who can't be mothers adoptive mothers, all of these sorts of different ways of mothering that exist that often we forget about because of the high profile of the nuclear family. And also of women being essentialized into the single role of mother. It is interesting how this can happen though. There's a city in Bolivia called Cochabamba and they celebrate a different day, the 27th of May. Now, strictly speaking, it's not quite Mother's Day. It's known as the Day of the Heroines. And it actually celebrates a battle during the War of Independence where the men were away fighting elsewhere and the Spanish were turning up and they all marched out and fought the Spanish. But it actually has quite militaristic origins, which I've even heard a lot of Cochabambans lament that their own people have forgotten, but it actually has quite a militaristic, rather than mother the caring, it's mother the defender. Although I'm not going to lie. In practice, when I was having to be there for the day... You mostly buy flowers and give your mum to chocolates. But nevertheless, in origin, it has a startlingly different origin. So even with those militaristic backgrounds, it's still become a commodified day in, in every sense of the word. Just to pick up on where Alex said about the celebration of mothers as heroines, I was just thinking how in the past year, in particular, women and more so mothers they have borne the brunt of all the hardships and tribulations of this pandemic. Like, I know mothers who have been working while taking care of their children when schools are closed down and childcare centers are closed down, trying to juggle their way out. And I feel like just buying something nice for your mom on this day, it is a very good symbolic gesture, but it does not even come close to, to fill the gap of what they have been confronted the past year. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Carolyn. Thank you. Alex. Thank you very much. Claire. Thank you. And me, your host, Tim. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Thung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange not the strange familiars which is another podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com 
And if you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, you can also email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Mordreau. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.